0: Church, we, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about why we're 6 Eight Church this morning, but we like to do justice, and if you were here this morning, if, uh, if you would fill out this card, that means everyone, if you would take the time, just fill out this card, let us know you're here, and if you're first time, uh, second time, third time, uh, guest with us, visitor with us, If you'll check those box, and for first time guests, we will donate a pair of socks in your honor to Northwest Children's Outreach. That's a local outreach for children in the area, and by filling out that card and checking that box, you can help us do justice in our community this morning. So if you would, take some time and fill that out and uh, turn that in in the offering later in the service. Well, we are starting up our third module and that might sound weird to you if you haven't been here for the first two, so let me explain a little bit about what that is. We've, we've started on a journey, we've embarked on a journey as a church uh, called the Disciples Project, and we have a, a dream of being a disciple-making church. We want to be a church that, that actually uh, puts our money where our mouth is and does everything we possibly can to make disciples the way that Jesus made disciples, to teach everyone to obey all that Jesus has commanded and to go into the world and and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we decided, well, what's holding us back? What's keeping us from taking that really seriously? So we've committed for the next several years to just be on this journey of of what it looks like, what it feels like, what it sounds like to be a disciple of Jesus. So we covered a lot of stuff in the first two modules, and all that stuff is available online on our website, 68church.com, that's the number 68. not the words spelled out, but 68church.com. You can go listen to all the first two modules and all the talks there. We have notes if you'd like to go through the notes from that as well, and then we're working on an, a printed guide of what we, cover, what we talked about on Sundays so that we can hand that out to you and you can get caught up on the first two modules uh, and be, be right there with us. But the first one was Understanding Redemption. The second module was uh, the church and what it means to be the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones. Well, now we're going to get into doing justice, what it means to do justice, and why we, as a church, do justice. So this, this whole module is going to be on justice. What is justice, and what does it mean to do justice? And for the first part, we break our sermon up into two sections. For the first part of this sermon, I want to just kind of share a story with you as we, as we progress. But before we do that, I want to share a couple of scriptures. James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. If you have your phones, we've got a couple verses from James. You can pull your phones out and open up the Bible app. And if you don't mind, check in on Facebook while you're there. Let the world know that you're here. James chapter 1, verse 26. My cold is almost gone, so hopefully I won't cough as much as last week. James one twenty six Those who consider themselves religious, <clears throat> and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. And then the next chapter, James two, verse twelve. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. I'd like you to keep those. Those are going to be some anchor passages for us as we go through this series. Uh, so keep those in your mind. And I just kind of want to uh, tell you a little bit about my life, <clears throat> my journey, <clears throat> and why uh, I feel a lot about uh, this the way I do. I grew up in a pastor's home, and uh, I don't know if you know this, but pastors, especially back in that time, weren't uh, weren't the most well-paid people on the planet. Um, my father worked a, a part-time pastor job, and then he spent a lot of the the warmer summer months painting houses to make up for the difference. My mom. Uh, who played piano for the church on on Sunday mornings and for the choir, for the services, for choir practice. She worked uh, a night shift at a nursing home as a nurse's assistant, so almost every Sunday morning she would show up at church having worked the night before and come play the piano for choir and and then go home and sleep for a couple hours and come back and play for choir practice and the evening service and then go back to work that evening. And they did this because... uh, of the of the call God had placed on their lives to serve, and um, but we didn't always have a lot. And I want to. I just kind of want to start before we get too far. I don't want. I don't want you to think that um, I was poor. I mean, by by most people's definitions, yes, we were probably poor. We didn't feel poor. We had a great family. We had a great growing up experience. Um, we're very close knit family. Um, but there were a lot of times growing up that we didn't have a lot. There were a lot of times growing up where, where we didn't even necessarily have what we needed. One of the first, some of the first memories I have growing up are of this guy, his name was Paul Sider. And uh, he, he would go to all of the, the grocery stores in town, and he had a pickup truck, and he'd get their day-old bread, and then he would go once a week and, and kind of drive around to some of the people that he knew that needed food, and he would take the day-old bread and, and go to their house. And one, our house was oftentimes one of the places that he would stop, and we'd get some of that bread. If we were lucky, we'd get those cinnamon rolls that were in the foil pan, you know, with the plastic top, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so, uh, so that, was, that was a great experience. But there were several other occasions growing up where members of the church would just kind of reach out and help our family. Sometimes it would be like giving us money to buy school clothes so we could go have some uh, school clothes that fit for the coming school year, or winter clothes, or a coat. I remember somebody gave us some money to go buy coats before my sister and I went to college. Still have that coat. Other times it was, you know, bringing us food or some it was random acts of kindness in other ways. But the church just kind of had this habit of caring for the people. And it was the, it was the church that I grew up, but it wasn't just the organization. Sometimes it was the organization of the church. Sometimes it was the, the church, you know, as the, as the title of the church would function. But most often it was people within the church that would would help us, that would care for us, that would take it upon themselves to meet our needs. Now, the church that we grew up in, the church that I grew up in, was far from perfect. In fact, if you wanted to, I could tell you lots of stories about all of the problems that we had in that church, especially in the later years. But they did do a good job in this area, at least a pretty good job of showing their faith by their deeds. But then, as I went through college, I started noticing a change. I started noticing a shift. There was kind of a shift in a lot of the churches. A lot of the churches that I got involved with in my college years, um, they didn't work hard at or try to help or care for people that much anymore. Uh, The care that they did, it was oftentimes outsourced, and they would kind of just send their monthly fee to a company that would would deal with this problem or that problem, and that was their way with, with caring for people. They would probably scoff at uh, the idea of putting together a massive effort to reach people through things like a food pantry. And they had maybe decent reasons, uh, you know, at least at least logical reasons that we could understand why they would make these decisions. Because well, people take advantage of churches when they are helpful. Or you're you're not really helping people, you're just giving them a handout. And these were the reasons we would hear why churches have stopped caring for people and reaching out. As churches became more and more obsessed with the church growth movement, becoming the next megachurch, becoming the church that—sorry—the <coughs> <coughs> church that started to get notoriety in the area. I think one of the things that got put on the back burner was the idea of justice, the idea of caring for others and doing what's right. Churches became more concerned with making a name for themselves and trying to be the most cutting-edge church in town that does the most ridiculous thing to get the most attention. Or churches were more concerned with their traditions and keeping the people that they already had coming to their church happy. But if faith without works is dead, there are a lot of dead churches. For the next... 12 or 13 years, I would work in churches. Serving in churches, being frustrated for the most part, some of them did some things and did what they could, but uh, frustrated for the most part, the churches were no longer being the church. Churches were no longer doing what I read in scripture the church was supposed to do. I was fed up with the church. It was around that time when I, when I got fed up with the church that I also got let go from uh, my job at a church for uh, a reason that's a different story for a different day, I can tell you that. Don't worry, it wasn't anything unethical or immoral, on my part, anyway. That <laughs> was a little jab. <laughs> They're not here, so it doesn't really count. But it was around that time that we found ourselves uh, out of work, out of a job for five months without any income. And during this time, um, I, I heard about, through a connection at that church, uh, a church over here in Hazeldell that was looking to pay a stipend for someone to lead worship on Sundays, and that is what I had been doing for the previous decade, had been a worship pastor. So I came over to interview to be the worship leader at Whipple Creek Church, which is what this church was before we renamed it to 6-8. And I did something different. I don't know if you've ever gone to a job interview. I don't know if you've ever interviewed for a job and tried to go in and get a job, but usually when you're going in to interview for a job, you go in to try to get the job, right? That, that's, the, that's the point of going on the job interview. You say the things that you think people want to hear. You, you answer the questions. You do research on the website of, of the company that you're working for so you know what the values are, what the priority, what the things are. You're supposed to say what the right answers to their questions are gonna be so you can hopefully get your foot in the door. Well, I decided to do something different this time. And instead of going in to try to get the job, I made a conscious decision when, when I came that I was going to talk about what I thought the church was supposed to look like, how the church was supposed to function, what it is the church is supposed to actually do. And if they liked that, then we could work together. If they didn't like that, I didn't want to work there anyway. Well, it just so happened that uh, Jim and Becky and Terry was there at the time. Um, They really resonated with what I was talking about because that was the kind of church Whipple Creek Church had tried to be. And so I found myself within a short time uh, talking about becoming the interim pastor and eventually the permanent pastor. But I decided that it was time for the church to be the church. That we should be more concerned with who we're reaching than who we're keeping. That we should make a positive impact on the community that we are in. That we should care for the hungry, the naked, the widows and orphans, the oppressed, and those who can't fend for themselves. Over the course of six months, I became the lead pastor. We changed our name to 6 8 Church. And while we're trying to be a church that reaches out to the community and cares for those um, who are lost and does everything we can to bring those who don't know Christ into the community so that they can experience Christ and know Christ, there's another way you can describe our church. And that is this, that you could say we're a church for people who are fed up with church. We're a church for people who have kind of reached an end of, you know what, I, I, I thought church was supposed to be this thing, but I haven't experienced that at a church in a long time. We decided we're going to be a church that does what the church is supposed to do. And what we read in Scripture, that what the church is supposed to do is to be making disciples, caring for people, disciples who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. So if you're here this morning and you're fed up with church, I want you to know that you're surrounded by a lot of people who have been there. You're surrounded by people who have walked on that journey with you you're sick of churches who don't seem to be that concerned with being the church, you're in a good place. But we as a church have decided that we're not just going to try to make a name for ourselves. We're not just going to to try to make me popular as the pastor of this church. We're not going to try to become the, the largest church in the neighborhood. We're praying that God will bring us people and that we'll grow and that we'll see people come to Christ and that We'll have thousands upon thousands of people who become disciples as a result of the work that we do here. But our goal is not to become a megachurch. Our goal is not to become a massive organization. At one point it was. That was what I wanted. I'll be honest with you. When I first started, I, I really wanted to be that pastor. I wanted to be that pastor that was kind of the, the guy at the helm of a big church. But over time, through studying God's Word and Scripture and understanding what the church is supposed to be, the most important thing we could possibly do is make disciples who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. It's the most important thing. And if over the next several years, if over the next three years, we as a church become disciples, all of us here gather together, if we become disciples who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, that will be something that that really the world cannot contend with. That'll be something that I think would glorify God and bring praise that is due to his name. That would be something that, that would give him credit for the work that he's doing. It wouldn't be some sophisticated strategy, some slick operating design that we could come up with to be able to, to draw people in it wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to point to any specific thing that we have done specifically to take credit for what God is doing here but we would look and say we've been just focused on making disciples like we've been told to make disciples, disciples who do justice, love mercy and walk humbly and as we've been focused on that then we can see how it is spreading and how it is reaching people but we will always as long as I am here <coughs> excuse me Isn't that a real pleasant sound right in the middle of a sermon? As long as I am here, we're going to be about making disciples who do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly. That's our goal. We want to be a church that makes a difference. We describe ourselves in other places as as a a do-something-to-make-a-difference church. That it's not enough to just go to church, but we actually have to be actively involved in being the church. That that we as as members of Six Eight Church, we can't just show up on Sunday and expect that everything is gonna work out the rest of the week because we were here for sixty minutes on a Sunday morning, but that we actually have to make a difference outside of the of this building, that we have to be making a difference. We're do something to make a difference, church. And that's why we do things like the food pantry and laundry love and mocha six eight. These are all things that we're doing so that we can make a difference. It's not so that we can give a handout, not that there's even anything wrong with that, but it's so that we can start to gain influence into the hearts and lives of people who are in a situation where they need some help, and then we can help walk with them and walk alongside them and help them walk into a new phase, into a new step and take a new journey because we're walking alongside them in a mentoring, caring, discipling kind of relationship. We aren't the first church to do this. There are a lot of churches that have done this in the past, but most of them have a different theology than we do. And especially in in churches that agree uh, with what we believe the Bible teaches, we're in a minority of churches. But I think what you're going to find is that if you can stick around, if you can hang on, This is the very beginning of a very, very exciting journey that God has us on. I promise you one thing, it will be hard. That's a guarantee. So if hard work scares you, you probably wanna go somewhere else. But I think we're at the beginning of a very exciting, amazing journey where God is going to use 6-8 Church to do amazing, great things that we shouldn't be able to do. In fact, if you look at what we do as a church right now and compare it to other churches, um, you would be hard-pressed to find a church that is 10 times our size that does as much as we do. I know this from experience. You would be hard-pressed to go to other churches that have 10 times as many people as we do and find them doing more than we do. God has enabled us, God has brought people, God has brought resources, God is doing things here that only he can take credit for. And it requires a lot of hard work, but at the end of the day, it gives a lot of glory to God. And as God continues to bring us others and more people, God is going to do more because we've decided that we want to do whatever God gives us to do and allow him to lead in that way. So, if you're fed up with church, if you're ready to get active, if you're ready to kind of get up and move, you're in a good spot, you're in a good place, because that's what we're about here at 6A Church. We want to be a different kind of church because we're fed up with churches that aren't being the church. We know that there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's a lot of darkness in this world that we live in, and the only way for the darkness to be pushed back is if somebody is bold enough and brave enough to step into the darkness, to step into the mess, and shine the light of Jesus Christ in a way that only Jesus can shine it. It doesn't come by the holy huddle and circling the wagons and protecting what we have here when we come together, but it comes by going out into the world and being people, disciples, who do justice. Love, mercy, we're going to ask the guys to come up. We're going to get the elements for communion. We're going to celebrate together as they're singing. I would invite you to stand up and and come up and get the elements, and we'll take communion together after the song. So a lot of that story at the beginning is is a lot of what motivates me and a, a desire to want to do this. Um, when you've been on the other side, you know what it feels like to be there to be in need and and how it can feel to help. And this is uh, one of the things we talk about in the daily guide that you got when you came in this morning. So I hope you'll spend some time going through that this week because I dig into that just a little bit more, what it's like to be on the other side. So that's one of the reasons why we do justice. But for the rest of this morning and then next week, we're gonna continue to talk about why. Why do justice? Why should we as a church do justice. Why is it such a big deal? What is, what's the big deal with justice? This morning we're gonna look at, at uh, some of the stuff that we've kind of covered in the past, but get into some new territory in the Old Testament. Next week we're gonna get into why we do justice when it comes to the grace and the cross and, and all of the all of the stuff that, that happened there. But before we get in, I wanna ask, um, we asked the question, why should we do justice? Maybe you've never asked that, maybe you've thought that because maybe it just seems like the thing we should do. What about the question, why don't people do justice? Why don't we do justice? Why is it that we don't seem to do what's right? Why is it that we often forget? Or we just don't have time, or whatever the reasons are. Why don't we do justice? If you have questions, you can send those to 360 818 4399, and I'll do my best to get to those during the sermon. If you have comments, answers to my questions, any of those things, you can send those in and I'll try to read those. Why don't we do justice? I think most people, if you, if you did a poll of, of any, any group of people, whether it's in the church or not in the church, if you just kind of went and asked questions of people, most people would say that we should care for others, but why don't we do it? An answer just came in, fear. We don't do it because we're fear out of ignorance or laziness. We don't do justice because we're afraid of what might happen. We don't do justice because we just don't know We don't know what the response is going to be. Why don't we do justice? What is it that keeps us from being motivated to do justice? Why aren't we motivated to do these things that we all feel are the right things to do? Why why do we just kind of stop short so often? One of the things I like to talk about and kind of poke fun of at some of our are people my age and younger is that we, we're, we like the idea of doing the right things, but we like it to the point of we'll like a post on Facebook about it. Maybe we'll share it if it's really poignant. We'll retweet it. We'll, we'll kind of you know, do those things. But when it kind of takes a turn and we have to get involved and do another step and get our hands dirty, we stop short. Why don't we do justice? Inconvenience just came in. It's inconvenient to do justice. If you've never If you've never been a part of doing justice, you may not understand that, but it's not always easy. It can be inconvenient, it can throw your schedule off, and we like our schedules, don't we? One of the big reasons I think we don't do justice is what we've talked about in the past. Here's a quote for you from Lester Neff, I think, is his name. We now live in a relativistic age in which it's virtually impossible to convince people that there is an absolute moral standard that they must bow to, whether they like it or not. So, to get people to be just and generous, we appeal to love or to practical reason. But appeals to love and mercy don't work any more than appeals to reason. Why don't we do justice? We're too tired. It's too time-consuming. Me first, like we talked about last week. I think one of the big reasons that we don't do justice anymore is because we don't know what's right anymore. Another answer came in. Personal effort. It It requires personal effort on my part. I have to actually do something, right? If we're going to do something and it requires too much of me, I'm probably not going to do it. This is yet another reason though, I think like we have talked about so many times, we have to continue to talk about truth. And I know you're probably sick of hearing about truth and maybe we're just getting to the point where you're starting to understand truth and we just need to talk about it for a couple more decades and we'll, we'll all finally get it. Truth is a big deal. The reason it's a big deal for this is doing justice at its, at its core, at its base level just kind of comes down to this one statement, doing what's right. You kind of look at a situation and you say, what's the right thing to do? And then you do it. That's what doing justice is, kind of at its foundation. If you take all the stuff away, there's a lot more to it than that. But, But it's looking at a situation and doing what's right. So a real easy example is if you're walking down the street and you see some guy beating up on a woman, the right thing to do, right, is to step in and intervene and help the woman who's getting beaten up. Right? I mean, I don't think any of us would, would have a problem with that. Or, or if you're at a park and you see somebody trying to kidnap a kid, you know, the right thing to do would be to try to stop and intervene and, and do what's right, where you call the cops, or you take the license plate number, you get in your car and you follow. You, you What is the right thing to do in that situation? You stop and you do it. Without truth, without a moral code, without a standard to kind of govern and to guide, all of us as we walk through this life, how are we supposed to look at a situation and know what the right thing to do is? How can we look at something and say, well, this is what's right. If we kind of walk away from God's design and we walk away from from God's big moral code that he's given us in the Bible, and we just decide, well, it's not relevant anymore, We we don't need to pursue it anymore, if we just kind of leave it in the dust, then how can we possibly know what's right? If we live in a relativistic age and what's true for you is what's true for you, but it might not be true for me, and what's true for me might not be true for you, then how are we supposed to work that out when what's right for me is in conflict with what's right for you? How do we work this out when what's right for me is to put you down because you're in my way right now? How do we work out, well I'm just in a bad mood and I'm driving down the freeway and I need to get home like I talk about all the time and I am in a hurry and you are in my way so I have a nine millimeter in my glove box, I'm not going to answer whether that is true or not, but uh, because I just want you to be scared. But what's right for me is to just pull out the gun and blow out, at least blow out one of your tires to get you out of the way. Maybe I just take care of you too because God help us all, we can't figure out how to drive in the passing lane and the slow lane. (coughs) When truth is relative, there is no reason for us to not to go there. When truth is relative, I start to get to decide what's right and when what's right for me conflicts with what's right for you, how do, we, how do we decide the difference? Without truth, there's no reason for us to do justice. So what does the Bible say then? What does the Bible say about why we do justice? The first one is one that we've talked about a lot of times. It's in Genesis chapter one, verse 26 and 27. This is made in God's image. This is the passage that we talked about very, at the very beginning of the, of the Disciples Project, and I want to just refresh it here, remind us of it here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are made in God's image. What does that mean to be made in God's image? It means that we look like God. It means that we bear God's resemblance. We have a likeness that looks like God. It means that we are a work of art. We are put together by a master craftsman. Without creation, without being created, there's ultimately no good reason to treat human beings with dignity and respect. If we aren't created in God's image, why would we need to treat someone with dignity and respect? C.S. Lewis says this, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are all mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. It is immortals with whom we joke, whom we work, we marry, we snub, and we exploit." There's something so valuable about human beings that not only may they not be murdered, they cannot even be cursed without failing to give them their due based on the worth bestowed upon them by God. The image of God carries with it the right not to be mistreated or harmed. Nicholas Walterstorff gives an, an example of how this works. He, he imagines some foreigner knowing nothing about U.S. history becoming perplexed to find that the Mount Vernon estate in Virginia is preserved as a national monument and treated as an object of such great worth. After all, she might observe, there are quite a number of old Virginia plantation houses of much greater architectural merit and beauty than Mount Vernon. We would respond that this was the house of George Washington, the founder of our country, and that explains it. The internal merits of quality of the house, the, the internal merits and the quality of the house are irrelevant. Because we treasure the owner, we honor his house. Because it was precious to him and we revere him, it is precious to us. So we must treasure each and every human being as a way of showing due respect for the majesty of their owner and creator. The image of God was at the very heart of the civil rights movement. In a sermon entitled The American Dream, Martin Luther King Jr. said, you see, the founding fathers were really influenced by the Bible. The whole concept of the imago Dei as it is is expressed in Latin, the image of God, is the idea that all men have something within them that God injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth, it gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. One day we will learn that. We will know one day that God made us together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. Being made in God's image brings with it an inherent dignity and respect. That means that, that we don't get to just treat someone however we feel they deserve to be treated because they are made in God's image. And because they are made in God's image, that means they deserve dignity, they deserve respect, they deserve love, they deserve mercy, they deserve all of the things that scripture tells us. This is one of the things that motivates us in how we do the food pantry here at Six Eight Church is that we think people should be treated with dignity and we've worked hard to make sure that our food pantry treats clients that come through with dignity and respect, that it's a safe environment and that people can come in and feel as though they are having themselves built up instead of torn down and disrespected. Why else should we do justice? God made Adam and Eve rulers over the works of God's hands from Psalm 8, but the earth is the Lord's and everything in it from Psalm 24. In other words, God gave humanity authority over the world's resources, but not ownership. That's important that we understand. God gave us authority over the world's resources, but not ownership. Everything is still God's, including those of us walking this earth. Everything we have is a gift from God then. Everything that we possess is a gift from God. All of our our belongings are a gift from God. And when we find ourselves struggling to care for others, we have to stop and figure out why. We have to stop and understand why we are being so possessive over something that is not really ours. Because a lot of the time when we find ourselves wanting to do justice or to do something that is right, the thing that blocks us, the thing that stops us is our possessions, right? Well, this is mine. Am I supposed to really give up my thing for this person? The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. Deuteronomy chapter 24. When you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back and get it. It is for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Now we don't know a lot about sheafs, sheaves, if you know the the plural. Anyone know about sheaves? Anyone know what a sheaf is? Sheaf uh, would be like like you see in a lot of uh, old olden times, is uh, like a, a a bundle of wheat that's that's bundled together and then it's stood up on its end and then they take that in to uh, to be threshed from that point. But so uh, you see the pictures in a lot of the old a lot of the old uh, kind of pioneer uh, drawings and paintings where you'd see this field and you'd see you'd see the, you know just just stacks of Uh, uh, of grain standing up on end and it's tied together and you can see the the heads of the grain at the top and you just see a field just kind of scattered with these things as they would kind of gather them up and tie them together and then they'd just be scattered around. Here God is telling uh, the owner of the field, it says when you're harvesting your field, and you're kind of walking along, and you pick up a sheaf, and then you pick up another sheaf, and you pick up another sheaf, and then you kind of turn around, and you start going down the next row, and you pick up a sheaf, and you, know, you throw it on the cart that the oxen are pulling, and you, and you throw it, and then you realize, oh, I missed one back here. God says, don't go back and get it. That's for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. Why would God say that that sheaf, that this worker, that this field owner, that this farmer had just, that he had just harvested, that he had just kind of, he had just cut it off and he was ready to take it in, why would God say that that's not his? Well, just because I forgot it, it's not mine anymore? Because the earth is the Lord and everything in it. God gave us authority over the world's resources, not ownership, and so when God is looking at the entire creation as it exists, as he kinda sits and he's able to see everything in one perspective, in one seat, he doesn't just look on the farmer and see the farmer harvesting his crop, he looks and he sees the immigrant who doesn't have any food, and he sees the fatherless who doesn't have any food, and he sees the widow who doesn't have any food, and he sees, (coughs) sorry, this whole creation, that's all his, and he sees people that he has put in charge of it to care for it, and he looks and he sees, don't take that one because that's for them. It's all mine, just you, you've got all of this stuff that you can work with, but here, leave that one there and leave some of the other stuff, and if you actually read Deuteronomy chapter 24, you'll read a lot of ways where God says, don't pick all the olives off the tree, don't pick all the grapes off the vine, leave some for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow we read the text closely, we see that part of the landowner's harvest was for the immigrant and the poor. This means that in God's eyes, it's actually theirs. If the owner did not limit his profits and provide the poor with an opportunity to work for their own benefit in the fields, he, did, uh, he didn't simply des- deprive the poor of charity, but of Justice. of their right. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. This doesn't just translate to farmers in a field, it translates to us and all the things that God has given to us. If you look at the farmer, you you, you might think, well that, that seems kind of unfair that God would take the one sheaf, but you also have to look at the whole picture that, that the farmer actually does bring in the whole harvest, right? The farmer brings in the whole harvest and he's able to take it and thresh it and then he's able to take what he needs out of it and he's able to take some and sell it. And he, Those who have the money to buy it are then able to buy it because they have the money to buy it. God isn't saying give the whole field to the immigrant, to the fatherless, to the widows. He's saying these are the parts I want you to leave for them because it would also not be justice to take all of it away from, from, uh, from those who can pay and those who are able to work and do the things that are needed to give it to the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. See, God has the whole thing designed and planned and mapped out how it's supposed to work. He has the farmer and has given the farmer the knowledge and the fields and the tools and the things that the farmer needs to be able to provide a crop not only for the immigrant, not only for the farmer and his family, but also for those who are going to buy. God has a design for it all. We need to follow the design. The same is true for us. God has given each and every one of us in this room some kind of ability, some kind of way that we can, we can use the gifts that God has given us for, for providing resources, for providing things that we can't, uh, that uh, others won't be able to provide. Some of you have skills that God has given you and that others will never have. And God has given you these resources that he wants you to use for doing what's right. He wants you to use them for for doing justice. So that means that we don't get to hoard every single resource that we have and put it in our coffers and claim that it's all ours because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That means everything that God has given us, God has given to us and he expects us to handle it responsibly. So, we have a responsibility then to to set parts of what God gives us aside for the work of doing justice for God's kingdom. We have the responsibility of caring for our families and making sure that, that we are providing the living that our family needs. We have a responsibility to the community. Well that's the why, that's why we need to do justice because we're made in God's image and because God owns everything and it's all His plan and His design. But what do we need to do with it? What, what do we need to do with the why? Well, we need to be disciples who do justice. We need to be disciples who do justice. Yes, we need to do justice as the gathered collective body at 6-8 Church. That's why we do things like the Food Pantry and Laundry Love and Mocha 6 Eight because we want to do justice as a church. The collective organized body at 6 Eight Church needs to be a body that does justice in the community and we will do as much as we possibly can. But we have far more requests than we have resources. We have far more people who come to us looking for help than we have the ability to respond with help. So if all of the burden and all of the responsibility falls on the organization and the organized body of 68 Church, then we're in trouble because we're not going to be able to do very much. Instead, what we are called to, as we read throughout all of Scripture, is not just to do justice as the church, but we are to do justice as individual disciples on a daily basis in our day-to-day lives. So we ask the question, who is around us that needs help? Who's around us that needs help? Who around me is hungry? Who around me is thirsty? Who around me is naked? Who around me needs shelter? Who around me is fatherless? We ask the questions, we look, and then we do what we can. How do we go about this task? Because as soon as you start looking, you're gonna notice what we all notice, right? There are far more opportunities to help, to care, and to do what's right than there are resources that we have to meet the needs. How do we go about this task of meeting the needs? (coughs) It's really simple. One day, one opportunity at a time. One day, one opportunity at a time. When an opportunity comes in front of us, as much as we are able to, we respond. When something comes in front of us, when God leads someone in our path, when somebody comes to us in some way, as much as we are able to, we respond. Look at the farmer. His response is to leave a sheaf, to give 10%, to, to to do what he can but then he has his needs as well. He does what he can to respond. The burden does not fall solely on him. When you're harvesting your field and you overlook a sheep, don't go back and get it. It's for the immigrant, the fatherless, and the widow. The call is not to grow our entire field for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Does God call some people to do that? Sure, I'm sure he does. But as the call is not always to give the whole field, the call is most certainly not to withhold the whole field to ourselves. We have to give a portion. One day, one opportunity at a time. That's my hope for us as as a church. My hope is not that that we will kind of rally together a bunch of people, and we'll have all of these events going on here in the building all throughout the week, and this is, just becomes a place where everyone just, man, you can, you can go to 6 Eight Church, and you can get this, and you can get that, and you can get this, and you can get that. That's not my hope. That's not my dream, my hope and my dream is that while we will continue to do those things as God leads them to us and brings us those opportunities, those are important, we will do those. My hope and my dream is that we start to be known out in the community, out in the world, as people who are doing justice on a daily basis. That, hey, did, did you know that guy? No, I, I, I didn't know that, he just, he just bought me a meal. you know this person? Uh, Who? What? Well, he just bought me some clothes. That we become known as disciples who do justice. That as people look at us, they don't see the activities that happen here at this address, but they see what this body does out in the world during the week. That's how we're known. One day, one opportunity at a time. Let's all stand. Let's pray together. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I pray that you would put in each and every one of us a deeply rooted desire, a deeply rooted longing, something that is so strong, a pull that is so strong within us to start doing justice in our world, to start doing what's right when we are given the opportunity. That when those things come up in front of us, that this pull would be so strong, this desire would be so strong that, that we can't not respond. That as we see somebody in need, as we see somebody who needs our assistance in one way or another, our response is not to just pray for them and walk away, but that whatever we have at that moment, we do. Whatever we have that we can do at that point in time, that you give us the boldness that you give us the courage to overcome the fear of stepping across that line into the mess, into the darkness, into this dangerous area, that you give us that courage to step into that and to do what's right with what you've given us. Not not, Not that we meet every possible need, not that we become the person that gives out everything that we have so that we have nothing left to live on, but that we are good stewards, that we are wise stewards of what you have given us and that we do everything we can with what we have for those who are in need around us. Father, open our eyes so that we see the need. Open our eyes so that we're willing to look beyond our selfish ideas, our our me-first way of thinking, our me-first world, and to look into the hearts and the eyes and the lives of others who are desperate and needing our help, and Father, I pray that you would give us the boldness to respond. Let us, Father, be a church of disciples who do justice, in Jesus' name.